babysitter is moving to Boston, which is a shame for us. She's great. The girls love her. We, we will be sad to see her go. But she is about the same age as my brother and his wife who live in Boston. And uh, so, I, you know, I sent an email to both of them together, kind of introducing them to each other. And, you know, I thought another kind of cool connection was that my brother has an MFA in uh, photography. He's a professional artist. And uh, Mary that does uh, photography and is kind of a serious amateur. And so, you know, I sent, sent an email saying, hey, you know, uh, y'all are going to be living in the same city. I think you, you, maybe y'all maybe you get a uh, coffee or something. Uh, she doesn't know many people. Y'all been there for a little while. Hey, and uh, you're both uh, photographers. So you have that in common. I sent the email. I thought I'd uh, done a nice thing. And only after sending it, <laughs> so I, I'll preface what I'm about to say by saying that all of the aforementioned people, my brother, his wife, and our babysitter are all lovely, kind, generous, warm, talented people. And I think they would get along wonderfully. But I realized that when I learn that somebody does photography, you know, particularly in a sort of in an art, artistic way, yeah, I like art. I like photography. I think, oh, that's cool. That's good. I, I'm glad to know that. That's interesting. I'm, uh, I, I want to hear more. But the thing is, I'm not a photographer. <laughs> so th there's this moment in Goodfellas when uh, Joe Pesci is about to get made. He's he's about to become a you know an honest to god. Uh, good fella. And, uh, you know, he gets all dressed up because it's his mother. He uh, uh, goes to meet these two, you know, real old school uh, Sicilian guys. They kiss him, they greet him, he gets in the car, he drives to the place, and he's, he's real proud. He's real excited. All his friends are at the diner waiting to hear about it. He walks into this room, he looks around, and, and, it, and it's a, just, a, just an empty fucking room. It's like a you know, room you might play cards in. It's got a, a little, little wooden table. Nobody's there. A and he realizes in that moment that he's not going to get made. He's going to get whacked. And his last words uh, are, oh, no. He, get, he gets shot midway through no. But um, the way he delivers the line, and, I, you know, I remember, I, I, I always thought this was really somehow really perfect like it just rang really true it's not a scream it's not a a plea he doesn't you know burble he doesn't uh panic he doesn't choke instead it's this cry of uh irritation <laughs> like like he like he's just remembering something like oh, i should have known Oh, I've got again this this again. Like he like he's figured it out and like oh of course it's this shit, and is and he's sort of blaming himself almost. Uh, and you you just know that if he hadn't gotten shot, it's he he says, oh no, like ah oh, son of a bitch, and you know that oh no, you know if he hadn't gotten shot midway through no. His, you know, he'd be he'd be slapping a palm to his forehead. That's the delivery, and it, I always thought that was just right, because 
so I write poetry. And when I, um, when a friend comes to me and says, Hey, uh, there's this uh, cool person who's moving to town. Uh, y'all should get together, have coffee. I think, okay, all right. I'm interested. Sure. This sounds great. I'd love to hear more. And then they say, oh yeah. And she writes poetry. Then that's my response. My response is the Joe Pesci response. It's, oh no, like I fucking should have known it. Another goddamn poet, Jesus fucking Christ, the last thing on earth I need. Because if, if there's one thing you can bank on when you learn somebody's a poet, it's that it's, it, it, it's, the, it's not good poetry. It's not gonna be good. It's not, you're not gonna be pleasantly surprised. It's just gonna be that much harder to make the difficult, small talk that you would otherwise make at coffee that one time and then never see him again. Instead, you're gonna, you have this thing in common, which ostensibly is one of the most important things in both of your lives. And yet, you know, from the outset, right away, that you're not gonna see, you're not gonna see eye to eye. You're not gonna see it the same way. You're not remotely gonna like each other's work. And you just wish, not only do you wish this other person wasn't a poet, but you wish that the person who introduced you had never fucking told you. And in that moment, when I realized this, I just had this image of, of my babysitter and my brother opening their emails hundreds and hundreds of miles apart in their respective apartments and sitting down and clicking on this note for me and reading the line about, oh, you're both photographers. And just in that same moment, I hear both of their voices saying, oh, no. Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts, a podcast about poetry and other intractable problems. So I've been reading Freud lately. I, I, he's, Freud is one of the uh, thinkers I come back to from time to time. But I'd, I'd heard about this book and I sort of resisted reading it for a while. It's called Totem and Taboo. I'd seen it cited in some other books and was... Uh, hesitant to read it just because I assumed it would be pretty racist, which it was. It's it's racist. Um, he he definitely looks at indigenous peoples from around the world and treats them as sort of childlike. The translation I have, you know, not surprisingly, uh, this A. A. Brill's translation uses words like savage and primitive. So, you know, it's, um, that's not so great, but I was really, uh, not prepared for, he's just, his treatment of women is really breathtaking. Um, I mean, he doesn't even bother to be sexist, at least, you know, with the, um, across the various races, he draws comparisons and analogies with women. I mean, he, he women are just furniture and I, uh, I should say that I'm not braving all this racism sex, and sexism for the sake of really impeccable science because 
Uh, Freud was a terrible scientist. I had a funny conversation the other day in a, um, a phone store. We, we had to replace our phones and the guy was sitting there with me while something loaded on the, the new phone. And he asked what I was reading. I was reading this book um, and I made some comment about how Freud was a, you know, an interesting thinker and a terrible scientist. And I said, but, you know, my wife's a psychiatrist. I don't think she studied a, a lick of Freud in medical school. And he said, oh, I'm sure they don't teach. I'm sure they don't teach anything about Freud. I'm sure that in medical school these days, they just say, you know, the only thing you need to know about Freud is he was right about one thing, the Oedipus complex. Otherwise, you can forget him. And I didn't press that question, but it did make me curious. What led him to think that the Oedipus complex was the one <laughs> scientifically, medically unimpeachable <laughs> claim that Freud had made? I, uh, But I, I should say, so he's, he's a terrible scientist, terrible um uh, psychiatrist as such. He, he gives in this um, half page footnote, he gives a kind of an amazing account of the degrees of removal between direct observation of the uh, indigenous peoples he's making, you know, uh, claims about. He, he gives this account, uh, he says, uh, but it may well be but it may be well to show the reader beforehand how difficult it is to establish the facts in this field. In the first place, those who collect the observations are not identical with those who digest and discuss them. The first are travelers and missionaries, while the others are scientific men who perhaps have never seen the objects of their research. He goes on, uh, not all the observers were familiar with the languages, but had to use the assistance of interpreters or else had to communicate with the people they questioned in the auxiliary language of pidgin English. So what he's saying uh, in a roundabout way is that there are the people that he's talking about. And then the, the coming into direct contact with those people are missionaries and travelers. And a lot of these people don't speak the native language. So they're using interpreters or they're speaking pidgin English. Uh, and whatever they learn about these people, they're learning uh, secondhand. They're learning through report. They're learning through sort of interviews. And then after that, there's this other degree of removal, which is what he calls the scientific men, where like Fraser and... Wundt and Lang, uh, these men who sort of write big sweeping books about uh, myths of indigenous peoples. So, so then there's that group of people who, you know, who never came into contact with the people they're writing about. And then Freud is taking all of their work and stepping back yet again and, and uh, uh, collating and comparing their work and then drawing his conclusions from that. So He's so far removed from anything like direct observation of these people. Oh yeah, and the other thing is that uh, the big claims in this book are not really about what people are doing in the present day when this book was written. They're really, they're about what, uh, what all human beings did in, in you know thousands and thousands of years ago at a much earlier stage of our technological development. So on top of all these degrees of removal, there's also the just bald speculation that because some people seem to live in hunter-gatherer-like tribes that you know seemed maybe like how some early humans lived in other parts of the world, that, that therefore this must be the same kind of culture and the myths and the structures of it must be uh, analogous. So I mean, there, there's so there's so much 
distance between Freud's writing and his ostensible topic that this is basically just um, make-believe. It's really just make-believe. And, and that's why I read it, because it is terrible science. It is uh, politically, socially noxious very often. Um, but it's a brilliant piece of fiction. You know, if, if you read Freud's books and just imagine that you're reading a Nicholson Baker novel about, a, you know, an especially crusty, racist, misogynistic old uh, psychiatrist, I mean, they're, they're wonderful. They're really beautiful. I mean, there are these fl uh, flights of uh, wonderful description throughout. And, and he, you know, most of all, he, he just provides this really novel way of thinking about the human imagination. Uh, so I always find him worth reading, even if I come away from his books believing in 0% of the facts presented. This particular book is, it is a book that, um, I mean, it's, it's all, he, he says, he concludes it by saying, oh man, he says, you know, I, I never really thought I would get into this whole field of, you know, indigenous peoples, you know, studies of indigenous peoples. But uh, so uh, you, you can imagine my surprise when it turned out that the whole key to understanding this entire field that everybody else has mis mischaracterized and misunderstood, the, the key to all of this, it turns out, is, uh, is my idea about the Oedipus complex. Who knew? What a coincidence. <laughs> Uh, so he does, I mean, he, he has, he has, uh, wonderful blinders when it comes to himself uh, very often, uh, but it's, so it's a book that is, it's kind of a bait and switch. It, it, uh, it initially appears to be a book about incest and then it becomes a book about patricide or parricide. And, uh, you know, he tells a really a really wild and fascinating story. I don't think it necessarily has much at all to do with actual human history, but as I said, it's uh, it's wonderful to see someone, it's sort of like, you know, uh, as, as plenty of other people have written about rhyme and meter, uh, part of the, the creative advantage of writing in rhyme and meter is that connections get made that would never get made otherwise. And that's part of what's wonderful about Freud, you know, the, the rules of dreams, the rules of, you know, sexual perversion, which sort of dictate in his um, vision of the world, all human behavior, uh, have all of these wonderful, you know, loopholes and catches and reverse backflip species of link from thought to thought. All, you know, relationships between a, a, a boy and a woman are, you know, maternal, all relationships between a a boy and a man are paternal. Um, all relationships between two peers are fraternal. Yeah, and inc incest is the glue that uh, that brings us all together. So I can't necessarily recommend Totem and Taboo. There are writers I wouldn't recommend to non-writers, but that I would recommend unhesitatingly to other writers. Um, I think Virginia Woolf is kind of one of those too, um, where they, they may be sort of more trouble than they're worth for people who just want to read, to read. 
But if you want to read like a sociopathic, bloodthirsty pirate and just just steal and loot and plunder with every page, then then yeah, go go read some Freud. There is a lot to be found there. Freud has this great little anecdote, or I guess what you know, um, pseudo anecdote. Since an anecdote is technically something that's not been published, but he has this little, this little um, uh, note, and I think it's in the Psychopathology of Everyday Life, where he he talks about this husband who's um, who has a buried ambivalence about his wife, and and he says at one point, in talking about his wife, he says, you know, I've always thought that if one of us should die before the other, then I would move to Paris. <laughs> I'll get to this again later on, but, I, but I, I really feel like that is how most people think about death. Like even like adult, educated, responsible people. I really think that's how most people think about death. Like, well, when one of us dies, I'll, I'll move to Paris because, you know, my movie will continue spinning on. So I, I was going to have a little disclaimer here about how this was a really fucking weird episode of the show. But then uh, it occurred to me that that's every episode. So I'll just say, if, for those of you who might be wondering or curious or uh, eager for an excuse to bail, I'll just say that I, I think this is a, f a fun, cool, interesting episode. It is also one that definitely falls pretty far over on the and other intractable problems and of the spectrum. So with that in mind, <laughs> for, so the, the ta Totem and Taboo is a, it's a narrow and obscure book. It, it is ostensibly, it's about this this weird um, consistency among the hunter-gatherer tribes, you know, that they were being studied at the early part of the 20th century, you know, this, this supposed tendency that they had to identify uh, tribes or certain factions of tribes with a particular animal, and then to have a certain kind of discipline with regard to that animal, whereby they would not eat or hunt that animal. They'd have a special identification with it. And they would also not marry anybody within that same animal group. So they'd only marry across. And of course, you know, Freud ends up um, offering a totally fucking batshit, but fascinating story about how once upon a time, um, all around the world, you know, uh, a alpha male leader used to lead every little tribe. And then eventually all the the smaller males ganged up and, and killed him <laughs> and then uh, and then broke broke into a, uh, a slightly more democratic uh, form of organization whereby you know people paired off uh, but didn't but it wasn't just one one big bad boss who took all the spoils and the totem animal is uh, kind of in, in Freud's vision is a a symbolic stand-in for the dead father alpha figure that everybody feels like sort of uh, fondness for and uh, fear of and uh, guilt over um, but is but is still sort of glad to keep where he is under under the ground and then the, and then they don't marry within that 
particular animal group because that was uh, their primal fear of his retribution for their... Again, this is just from a a so fundamentally always already male point of view that it, it b- becomes a nonsense book if you try to like occasionally read it as if he were also talking about women the idea is that you know the, the all of the women belong to the one big bad boss daddy and so uh everybody else had to uh, keep uh, their hands off so that's why they don't they practice exogamy, supposedly, which they supposedly practice, which again, it's all fucking made up. There was, just for an example of the just astounding Freudian sexism in this book, at one point there is a thesis put forth by one of these other uh, pseudo-anthropologists in which he says that he thinks the reason that the these tribes sort of took after, named themselves after, and kind of identified with a particular animal, fox, say, Uh, He says the reason was that once upon a time, there was some great figure, uh, you know, who achieved a lot and was and became identified with the animal was sort of named for attributes of the fox, say, for cunning or uh, strength or speed or whatever it was. And then all of that great person's offspring were carried on that name that had been assigned to that um, that that great figure. And. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the the um what freud offers as a as a devastating disproof of this thesis is the um he says ah but it would be impossible for the great figure to pass down his name because all of these tribes uh, uh practice matrilineal naming that is they take their names and their tribal identifications from their mothers and so of course <laughs> It would be impossible for the great figure to pass on his name because it goes without saying in this explanation. It took me a second reading it to understand what he was saying because he didn't connect the dots. But of course, it goes without saying for him that, of course, whatever great figure it was, even in like some hypothetical, you know, ancient mythic culture that he's half inventing as he talks about it, even there, that great figure who accomplished all this stuff, could clearly never have been a woman. So that's just a taste of Freudian sexism. But, you know, I, I, I dwell a little bit on the weirdness and obscurity of this topic because it didn't in itself hold any special interest for me going into it. And as I said, I don't take away from this book any, any firm uh, observations about human history or anthropology. But the the mechanism by which Freud examines human motivation is fascinating. And that is finally what all of his books are about, or at least the ones I've read, are why we do what we do. Um, And that, for me, especially as a writer, is something I will never stop being interested in. Even if his particular account of a certain group or a certain patient or a certain uh, dream might be bananas, it's still worth listening to. It is still a better story than you're going to find about anywhere else. And I mention this because I, so <laughs> Totem and Taboo was not the only piece of weighty, antiquated, politically dubious, uh, serious German thought that I read recently, though I guess Freud was Austrian, so you know maybe it's a slightly different category. But um, 
I read not out of spite, exactly, but at the unwitting, uh, at the inadvertent prompting of Brian Platzer, the cosmopolitan Brooklyn sex novelist I mentioned last week. He responded to an earlier episode of Slee Ricketts in which I said something about terror and horror and how I proposed that the real difference between terror and horror was that terror uh, had with it, uh, you know, some element of uncertainty. It carried an element of uncertainty and even perhaps for that reason, some kind of hope or possibility for something to come, whereas horror was uh, essentially an expression of recognition and dread at something inevitable. And uh, Brian wrote me to say, aha, in fact, the real difference between terror and horror is that terror is or can be sublime. And horror can never be sublime. And I responded, hey, thanks for the note. What the fuck is sublime? Now, I, 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 I have heard of the sublime. I know of this mode of thought generally. Uh, and he, you know, he very politely uh, clarified that, that in this context, the, you know, the sublime referred to sort of the, the highest, the best, the most, a certain kind of superlative experience or perception. And terror had something of it in the sense that, you know, you could be terrified at, at a mountaintop, you know, the, the, the dizzying height and the sprawling distances below, but you're also sort of in awe of them. And that, that was an experience of the sublime, whereas horror really didn't ever quite, uh, could never really align itself with what one might call the sublime. So uh, I, I, you know, I, I thanked him for this clarification and, and then I had to sort of chew because I, I so the thing, the thing about the sublime is I, I've, I've heard of it and I've heard of it in a, con, in, in a couple of contexts, both philosophical and literary, in which, you know, it is a, a narrow, obscure, super abstract, uh, dry, esoteric, not especially juicy or uh, narratively rich topic of consideration that was especially hot and sexy in uh, 18th century continental thought. So for most people, it would be obvious why one might not <laughs> find this idea especially interesting. But it's, it is a little odd for me because as, you know, as my wife might say, I, you know, I love boring stuff. I love weird, dry, philosophical literary shit. I spent 10 minutes distinguishing between terror and horror uh, using Latin etymology. So I, I ought by all rights to be interested in the sublime. And yet I find I have a kind of a weird, almost a magnetic aversion to it. And so I did what any normal, healthy, sane adult man would do. And I, uh, I decided that because I felt a strong desire not to learn about the sublime, I ought to go ahead and read uh, Kant's book on it. 
So I did. Um, it is blessedly a very short book, so that helped. Uh, but I got a copy of uh, Kant's uh, 1764 uh, Observations on the Feeling of the, of the Beautiful and Sublime. And sublime, by the way, there's a little bit of a uh, uncertain etymology there, but they think that it's it does mean something like you know most uplifted or the utmost or the the loftiest. Um, so when when you know Brian said it was the highest or the best, the best of the best, that that is that seems pretty uh, true to uh, its linguistic roots. And in German, it's um, uh, sublime is uh, erhabenen. Um, which which means I think similarly sort of up, uplifted or or um, most uh, had most high something along these lines. So uh, Kant writes a, a funny little book. The only other book of his I'd ever read was his his very slender uh, volume on the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. If I'm thinking of the right fucking book, uh oh, I hope I am. Yeah, yeah, grounding for the metaphysics of morals, and that is a very rational and um, exceedingly dry <laughs> text, if memory serves. This is a little, a little jauntier. He was younger when he wrote this, and it's um, it's sort of a book uh, in which he he uh, tries to distinguish between the beautiful and the sublime, uh, and he does it. He does it, you know, a kind of an interesting job of that. But it is as much as anything, it is sort of a book of Immanuel Kant's uh, personal prejudices recorded in in witty and um, supremely self-confident prose. So here, I'll, I'll read a, a little bit from it because I did think it was worth reading. I was glad I, I read it. Uh, here's the, the very first sentence. He makes a point to say, the different sentiments of gratification or vexation rest not so much on the constitution of the external things that arouse them as on the feeling intrinsic to every person of being touched by them with pleasure or displeasure. So, you know, kind of clarifying that, you know, he's not really in this case totally purely talking about uh, qualities that belong to stuff out in the world. He's talking about a certain kind of experience. And part of what he is interested in is which kinds of experiences we are more or less liable to have depending on our character and any number of other sometimes uh, troubling identity markers. But uh, he... He, I'll say a lot of this book, like I just read it, um, the at the urging of Steve Tears, a comic artist. Um, I just read Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp, which is just gratifying and delicious. And I'm definitely going to be talking with Steve about that in another um, episode to come. But like that essay, this whole book I think is really much heavier on the on examples. <laughs> <laughs> on definitions, uh, so much so that I think it would have driven uh, Socrates pretty fucking crazy. Here's a little bit of uh, something like a definition that he offers. Here's some here's some some examples and some definitions. So he says, "Lofty oaks and lonely shadows in sacred groves are sublime. Flower beds, low hedges, and trees trimmed into figures are beautiful. The night is sublime. The day is beautiful." And going on, he says. Um, the sublime must always be large. The beautiful can also be small. The sublime must be simple. The beautiful can be decorated and ornamented. So um, this, oh here, a long duration is sublime. If it is of time past, it is noble. If it is projected forth into an unforeseeable future, then there is something terrifying in it. 
an edifice from the most distant antiquity is worthy of honor. Uh, Haller's description of the future eternity inspires a mild horror and of the past a transfixed admiration. I'll say, by the way, uh, that Kant seems to have gainsayed uh, Brian here by, by identifying a mild horror as, uh, as occurring in an instance of experiencing the sublime. But I think we, we sort of generally get the, the idea he's talking about. Oh, he says, he says, sublime qualities inspire esteem, but beautiful ones inspire love. So the sublime seems really to be kind of equal parts feeling, impression, and uh, judgment. Or, or recognition of worth, of value, of in, in importance, uh, weightiness. So um, most of the book is 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 just a list of ways in which women and men are different, <laughs> in which different um, races and nationalities are different. That's a little uh, more grim. Though there's a, there is a pretty good line about the French, uh, which uh, as a as an English speaker, I think it's it's my my right and my duty always to take a little bit of pleasure in someone willing to make fun of the French uh, here. He says, he's talking about the Frenchman, the quintessential Frenchman. He says, he very much likes to be witty and will without reservation sacrifice something of the truth for the sake of a witticism. By contrast, where he cannot be witty, he displays just as thorough an insight as someone from any other people. Uh, for example, in mathematics and in the other dry or profound arts and sciences, a bon mot does not have the same fleeting value with him as elsewhere. It is eagerly spread about and preserved in books as if it were the most important occurrence. This would be, but basically like this part of the book would just utterly delight my grandfather who loved nothing so much as jokes in which the various slightly, uh, the, the slight shadings of cultural difference among a very narrow slice of Western European ethnicities were uh, played up in high contrast for 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 laughs and and a, a very gentlemanly nationalistic competition. Um, so if that is your if if that's your cup of tea, then boy, there's nothing juicier <laughs> than observations on the feeling of the beautiful and sublime. Otherwise, it's it's I think not not an essential read. He does have a a, a, a decently long section on on uh, how people of different humors experience the sublime, which is you know the the uh, of course medically and scientifically utterly outdated um, notion that there are four basic personalities based on a balance of humors, the four essential fluids being uh, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. Um, I always, I think that's a far better personality test than any, than the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs. I, I, I love the four humors. They may not have anything to do with reality, but they're just, a, I think, a terrific way to break people up into different kinds. So, as I said, I read this book and I found some of Kant's little notes sort of charming, but you know, it's not, it's, I wouldn't say it's, it's any more prejudicial a book than Totem and Taboo. I wouldn't say it's any more uh, pompous or ill-founded in places than Totem and Taboo. And yet I, it really, uh, I had a hard time getting through it as short as it was. And and this led me to think of this old Tim Parks essay I read 
years ago. Um, so Tim Parks writes, he's a novelist, I've never read any of his novels, but he writes occasionally sort of interesting little essays for the New York Review of Books. And nine years ago, I think in, yeah, April 25th, 2012, he had this little uh, piece called Why Readers Disagree. And what I liked about this book was that it was, not, this essay was not, he was not just saying, you know, uh, here's why you like this book and I don't like it. He, he was saying, you know, let's let's reduce the equation. Let, let's simplify a little bit and uh, control for judgment, control for critical assessment. Because, you know, I think anybody who spends a lot of time reading and thinking about books recognizes that there is a real difference between saying well, this was exceedingly well done and this uh, tore me apart right like it is very possible to read a book and say well i i really admire this was you know i, I can't fault it it's a very well done uh, novel and uh the prose is clean and the characters are uh, recognizable and the plot is taught and yet i just don't give a shit about it this is this odd sort of thing where, you know, he's talking about once we agree on our critical assessment, more or less, there is still this weird divergence. Um, this is partly, um, well, here, I'll just read the, the very beginning of this essay. I love the new DeLillo and I hate it. It's a familiar conversation, like against dislike with no possible resolution or alternately or alternatively, I can't see why freedom, it's the Jonathan Franzen book, upsets you so much. I didn't like it either, but who cares? Interest against disinterest, as when your wife, brother, friend, colleague raves about some Booker or Pulitzer winner and you feel vaguely guilty. Sure, you agree, great writing, intriguing stuff, but the truth is you just couldn't find the energy to finish the book. So is there anything we can say about such different responses? Or must we just accept de gustibus non disputandum est? Uh, there's no accounting for taste. The fact is that traditional critical analysis, however brilliant, however much it may help us to understand a novel, rarely alters the color of our initial response. Enthusiasm or disappointment may be confirmed or attenuated, but only exceptionally reversed. We say James Wood, Colm Toybin, Michiko Kakutani admires the book and has given convincing reasons for doing so, but I still feel it is the worst kind of crowd pleaser. And here's the heart of the essay. I'm just going to read one more little paragraph, uh, and this really sums up most of what he is getting at here. Let me offer a possible explanation that has been developing in my mind over a decade and more. It is a central tenet of systems-based psychology that each personality develops in the force field of a community of origin, usually a family, seeking his or her own position in a pre-existing group or system, most likely made up of mother, father, brothers, and sisters, then aunts, uncles, grandparents, and so on. The leading Italian psychologist, Valeria Ugazio, further suggests that this family system also has semantic content, that is, as conversations in the family establish criteria for praise and criticism of family members and non-members, one particular theme or issue will dominate. So that got a little gnarly. Um, he, he buys in in a, a sort of pitiful way to what he talked about, the systems-based psychology stuff. 
I think it's a lot of, um, I think it's a lot of hogwash. I, I think it's really, uh, there's very little there. But the thing he identifies that I think is sort of worth thinking about is he says that, that you know, he talks about it in terms of these families or these systems you grow up in. And he says that each one of these has some essential central value, some concern that matters more than any other. And that central concern, the one that determines how you evaluate yourself, each other, the, the rest of the world, what matters, what you are driven to do, how you try to make your parents proud, how you try to rebel against them, whatever it is, that central concern is going to be the thing that if you are a book reading person, must be present in a book in order for you to give a shit about it. That's his basic thesis. I think right off the bat, He's just fucking totally wrong about the family thing. I mean, I think family is important. Family gives you, you know, provides you with a lot of your fundamental values and so forth. But, you know, just that mention of the Franzen book um, put me in mind of the corrections, which I, I only read a, a couple years ago at um, the recommendation, again, of uh, sex novelist Brian Platzer. Um, though, you know, I, I guess I also have to credit, like, Oprah and 10 or 20 million other people who read it before I did. But it's a really fucking good novel. And I, I, I bought copies for my brother and my sister because the, the book is about three siblings, three adult siblings who had, uh, you know, uh, emotionally tumultuous, but basically with one darker exception, had basically sort of normally unhappy childhoods. And, and then they all went out into the world to make lives for themselves. And all of them turned away from their parents' way of doing things in different directions. They all three of them corrected for their parents' choices with their own choices, many of which are, of course, needless to say, also uh, terrible, damaging, and likely to inspire further corrections in their offspring where applicable. Um, but, you know, I... I, I enjoyed this. And the reason I sent it to my siblings, apart from it just being, a, I think, a really big, buttery, gossipy, fun read, is that we did the same fucking thing. You know, our parents were perfectly good parents. They got divorced. We had some, we were Catholic. We had some, you know, we were, we were in, uh, in very ordinary ways, uh, miserable at times, um, but basically healthy and fine. And we all imitated our parents while also correcting in in totally different directions because each of us saw the, the the basic family situation as being totally different each of us had a completely different read on what the essential problem or question or theme was we didn't agree about it and that's why this whole system psychology thing seems like bullshit to me but what doesn't seem like bullshit is that a person whether it is established in childhood or later a person who goes out into the world and then reads books about people in the world will likely have some fairly central sense of what matters that is going to be a little different than probably his parents, his siblings, etc. Uh, or at Al, I don't know. It depends on how you're, I don't know what the rule would be there if you're talking about non-specific others. Anyway, so I think there, that question, like each of us has this, uh, unstated central value that determines whether or not something is going to matter to us regardless of whether or not we uh, critically assess it to be valuable. So this seemed to me 
like part of the part of the question about this whole sublime thing because I just it, I think it's not just the sublime it's it's sort of almost any aesthetics I, I find that I've read some books on aesthetics on you know what makes something beautiful and for the life of me I just I can barely stand to make myself care about them and I think it's um I think it's the same problem somehow uh I did you know for a while I I I, I wrote up this whole thing I was thinking that that I was going to go into the, this whole religion thing and but you know the the truth is that I had little patience for the sublime back when I believed in God and then once I stopped believing in God I continue to have little patience for the sublime. So I, I think that was beside the point. I will though, because it, it led me to this this um this Darwin quote. I, I will take a moment here just to say that I there was a a little fad for a while toward the tail end of the new atheist wave. Toward the end of the new atheist wave, there was this little meme i guess in the in the, the the older sense that one heard from scientists and science adjacent people science enablers i guess richard dawkins had a whole spiel on it um uh, and and this was this argument cited the very end of the origin of species which is, as i mentioned the other week is a beautifully written book uh but the the end of this book which of course is quietly he doesn't in the, in the origin of species he doesn't uh, explicitly make a point there of saying oh this also means your whole religion is is uh horseshit but uh but that <laughs> that concern is clearly very present throughout and rightly so because as uh, james dickey said uh the basically the 19th century just stepped on a big fucking skateboard called charles charles darwin and that was you know that was the 1859 publication of the origin of species i think it was 59 so he, the, the very end of the book, in in answer to the, uh, it, it sort of is a preemptive answer to a question about, well, then what the fuck happens to God and religion if we believe all this stuff? Um, here's, here's Darwin's sort of closing line on this unasked but very in, highly anticipated question. He says, there is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers, this view of life being the view of life as uh, determined in its forms and development by the principle of natural selection. There is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. And the new atheist claim, the Dawkins claim, the, I don't know if Sam Harris did this or, or you know, uh, uh, Hitchens, uh, or, but th this was, this was, this was a meme that came up again and again. Uh, the, the claim was, hey, you don't even need religion because look, if you just stare into the abyss of nature, you can get grandeur and awe there too. And that I think is part of maybe my irritation with some discussion of the sublime because you're missing the whole fucking point when you say that you don't need religion because you can find grandeur too in science. Even Darwin, I want to say, like, did you think that grandeur was the thing we were looking for? Did you think that what made the religious worldview good was that it had grandeur? Was that it provided 
some instances of the sublime. It's that's fucking insane. No, that the, the, the what's good about the religious worldview is that it provides a a loving God who endows not just your own personal life but the whole universe at large with uh, meaning, purpose, and uh, a, a an eternal. Uh, narrative, you know, participation in a narrative, and a daily intimate witness to every act, every moment. It, that is obviously terrifying, but like that's the whole value. That's why people are scared of religion and they are moved by it. That's why they cling to it. That's that's the thing. It's the loving God who watches over you. That's the thing people care about with religion. <laughs> that's the reason that it would be nice if all of that were true. Of course, it's not. But grandeur, Jesus, yeah, we can all go to the Grand Canyon. We get that. That's not the point. It reminds me, too, of the um, more recent arguments about how it's good. <laughs> it's, um, uh, it's good that life is limited. Because <laughs> it's good that life is limited. Because, uh, you know, if it went on forever, then uh, we would get bored. And, uh, you know, any heaven would eventually turn to hell. And it's the limitation of life that makes it so precious. And that is uh, bonkers. That is just bass fucking backwards as an argument goes. I mean, that is very much like saying, hey, you know that, you know that bad feeling your tummy gets when you eat a few too many French fries? Well, just imagine if you were sitting at dinner and, you know, and, and that dinner went on forever and you kept eating and eating. Now, isn't it nice then that at the end of this meal, after dessert and cappuccino are served, a man in a giant black cowl with a huge fucking scythe is just going to come through the room and chop off all of our heads? Isn't it nice to think that he's coming any moment now? Because otherwise, what, were you going to eat more cheesecake? That's a fucking juvenile insane argument and again i think that the kind of people who make that argument are the kind of people who say uh if one of us dies i will move to paris because for them it's not fucking real yet so setting that for the moment aside i then started to think about back in uh baltimore when my wife was in medical school and in her medical residency one of the questions I could count on eliciting nothing but uh, groans or dead blank stares from her and from all of her colleagues who were training in psychiatry was this question, hey, what do you think sanity is? Just the most obnoxious kind of, uh, you know, freshman dorm room uh, uh, version of myself uh, question that I could possibly have asked, and I and I and I did uh, a number of times ask it because I am still basically the same I've always been. Um, so they had less than no interest in answering this question, even though they were devoting their considerable intellect to the study of psychiatry. Uh, and you know that that's because psychiatry is not about pondering the nature of sanity. It's about helping people get through the day or get through the week. It's about helping people not kill themselves, right? Your oncologist doesn't give you advice on your marriage. He just tries to cut the cancer out of you. There was a, there's a little passage when I was a kid I read in, 
I love the adventures of um, uh, Sherlock Holmes. And I read in one of the stories, I can't for the life of me remember which one, but I ended up Googling and just finding the quotation from it. So there's this moment when Dr. Watson tells uh, Holmes here. So he, 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 he says that he was surprised at times, not only by how much Holmes knew, but also by how much he didn't know. So here's a little citation. Here's the little uh, quote I wanted to say. He says, my surprise reached a climax, however, when I found incidentally that he was ignorant of the Copernican theory and of the composition of the solar system, that any civilized human being in this 19th century should not be aware that the earth traveled round the sun appeared to be, to me, such an extraordinary fact that I could hardly realize it. You appear to be astonished, he said, smiling at my expression of surprise. Now that I do know it, I shall do my best to forget it. Uh, Holmes goes on to say that the reason he doesn't want to know that the earth revolves around the sun is that uh, that will just clutter up all of his brain space that he could fill with uh, facts and data that was, would be much more relevant to his uh, field. And that that's that's the, the, the key to his success is that he is very selective about what he learns and what he remembers. And so if he happens to run into some fact that he deems useless, he will uh, say as he does to Watson. Now that I do know it, I shall do my best to forget it. That, of course, um, despite being a just delightful character moment, is uh, total nonsense. Because, of course, what makes Holmes the master of induction that he is, is that he is, in fact, a generalist. That he happens to know a lot of random shit about a lot of random shit. And that's how he's able to pull together all of these connections from the type of you know mud that turned up on your boot and from the uh, the, the color of the theater ticket stub that was stuck in your coat pocket because he happens to know all of this random shit. So the idea that he would deliberately jettison uh, some piece of trivia is, uh, I think, is actually very silly. More likely he just would forget it because it wouldn't ever come up again for him. Um, but I do feel a little bit this way about aesthetics. I feel a little bit this way about aesthetics. I feel a little bit like the psychiatry residents about aesthetics, not because I don't care about beauty, but because I, at heart, I'm really a writer. And I want to bring it about, but pondering it in the abstract at length always feels a little pointless to me. And uh, there's a there's a wonderful little um, essay, little micro essay that uh, um, Poe has, Edgar Allan Poe has, on how he composes. And he says, um, I prefer commencing with the consideration of an effect, keeping originality always in view, for he is false to himself who ventures to dispense with so obvious and so easily attainable a source of interest, I say to myself in the first place, of the innumerable effects or impressions of which the heart, the intellect, or more generally, the soul is susceptible, what one shall I on the present occasion select? Having chosen a novel first and secondly a vivid effect, I consider whether it can best be wrought by incident or tone, whether by ordinary incidents and peculiar tone or the converse, or by peculiarity both of incident and tone afterward, looking about me or rather within for such combinations of event or tone as shall best aid me in the construction of the effect. So I can't say I have ever um, been quite as calculating and deliberate as uh, 
our um, uh, genius cousin Poe was. But uh, I do recognize that that you know in a much fuzzier, sloppier way. I do recognize that method, saying you know I know the feeling I want this scene to have. I know the effect I want this. To, I want. I know how I want people to feel when they get to the end of this section. And so I, I, I want to keep fiddling until it feels like I've gotten there. But the idea of studying that abstractly seems a little misplaced, a little pointless. But I think also, if I'm really honest with myself, um, there's, there's more than just a lack of interest. There's an aversion, as I said earlier. Uh, and I think that you know, I, I have come to recognize or at least suspect in myself and in others that often if there is a, a pointed area of avoidance, that that it can be a telltale sign of denial. Kierkegaard says that, uh, you know, when, when you're in denial about something, uh, everybody else in the room laughs effortlessly at a joke about the topic, but you sit there in silence while a chill runs down your spine. And, you know, I don't know if a chill ran down my spine when I got that text from Brian, but a certain, you know, irritability, a certain aversion came to me. And, and I think this just really comes back to this question of the sublime being both a feeling and a judgment. That, you know, while you could aim to terrify or horrify in a story, um, you could aim to amuse, you could aim to make somebody laugh in a poem or a play, you could uh, aim to entertain or to surprise. Uh, or to you could even aim to annoy within uh, with some you know larger goal, but you can't really aim to evoke the sublime because of its because it's not just a feeling; it's also an assessment. It is, as Brian said, it is the best, the most high, and you know I think part of my leeriness of it is finally that it is um, that it is something I, I think I sort of want. I think, I think in my, you know, my, my deepest, most uh, embarrassing hopes and ambitions for my own work, I, you know, I would love to evoke that. But of course, I can't aim to. And hearing other people talk about finding it elsewhere, as then, you know, as, as uh, uh, Kant does, quite dishearteningly, I think only in the work of he finds, sorry, uh, Homer and Milton, I think are the, the, the only uh, poets in, in whose work he identifies as sublime, maybe forgetting some. Um, uh, that's, you know, that can be um, dispiriting. And, and of course, Brian is himself a writer, but he didn't seem put off by the idea in the same way. And that makes me think that maybe it's just because he's a slightly different kind of writer. You know, when I'm bad, when my 
writing is bad. It's bad in a particular way. Like, I, I think there's there's really nothing even remark like at all remarkable about a writer writing bad work. William Logan has some, I mean, he's, he drives me most crazy in interviews when he, and I will at some point do an episode on him, but he, he, he has this terrible habit of saying like anyone who could write X line is a poet or anyone who could write Y line couldn't be a poet. And that's just nonsense, especially in the negative formulation, because every poet writes thousands of bad lines. I mean, that was the, 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 um, the semi-apocryphal uh, quotation attributed to Ben Johnson when he overheard some young wags talking about Shakespeare and saying, you know, they, they, after his death, saying, oh, you know, it said he never struck a line. And, and Johnson said, you know, would that he had struck a thousand, uh, which is true. You know, Shakespeare had a pretty good fucking batting average, but he wrote some clunkers. Uh, all of us do. But I think what is maybe telling or interesting is not just that a good or even a great writer can write bad work. But what can be interesting is the way in which it's bad. And when Shakespeare's bad, it tends to be both too complicated and too pat. And when that, you know, maybe if you were smarter than I am, you would be able to begin to figure something out. Maybe that tells you something. I think when I'm bad, I'm bad in a particular way. I'm not bad in other ways. I tend to be, when I'm bad, I tend to be, it tends to be sentimental. It tends to be precious. It tends to be pretentious or seemingly pretentious uh, or uh, boring often. Um, or sometimes it's just really uh, horribly dark. Those tend to be the ways in which my writing is bad. And I think if I had to guess, uh, those are all maybe symptoms of the writing of somebody who is at least, uh, you know, has ambitions of writing something that might evoke uh, the feeling of the sublime. And so maybe that's my real um, allergy to it as a concept. Because, of course, thinking about it, reading a fucking book by Immanuel Kant on it is not going to help me a lick. It's not going to get me a damn bit closer to actually achieving it. I will. So I, 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 I hesitate to speculate on the, uh, the psychological and aesthetic implications of the theoretical badness of another uh, living writer on this show. Well, no, that's, I'm, I'm lying if I say that. I do that all the time. But I hesitate to do it in the case of uh, Brian Platzer because at some point I am going to have him on this show. But then again, he was the one who told me that I should be more confrontational with my guests. So I will say, I will just say, I suspect that when Brian is bad, his badness is of a different stripe than mine. And uh, I can't wait to have a, a juicy knives out conversation with him about exactly how he is bad when he is bad. He is, though, for the most part, quite good and, uh, and worth, worth reading as a, as a uh, novelist and essayist. But, um, you know, I, I think having got to the end of this sort of winding and, uh, and yet circular investigation into the sublime, I, I realize that, of course, the thing I do actually need to go on and, and do after this, the thing I have to continue with is, is writing. I mean, I have to go on after this, after, you know, s figuring this out to the extent to which I have, I have to actually continue to go on and write. And so uh, I can just say, you know, all I can really say, all I can really say here is I recognize the sublime uh, and I acknowledge its significance. But now that I do know it, I shall do my best to forget it. 
Well, that was a long, weird episode about things probably uh, easier not to talk about, probably things better left alone, I guess. Uh, so I figured I would close by talking about a poem that I that is just stuck in my ear like a like a burr and a sweater. It's just like it's a thorn. This poem has just bugged the shit out of me for years. It, it's called Sixty Years After. It's by Derek Walcott. It's from his last book, White Egrets. And you know when I read the book. Uh, let's see when this came out. This came out in 2010. So I read it 11 years ago. I got it right when it came out. It was a gift from uh, Ryan. And uh, this poem really stood out. It's a, it's a really good poem. It's And it's also, a lot of the poems in the book are sort of series and their force is distributed across several pages. This is one that uh, really stands on its own and is a really powerful 16-line uh, knockout. But <laughs> there's this problem with the poem. There's this one maybe fatal problem that has kept me from teaching it, talking about it, reading it. I, 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 I've come back again and again, and every time I come back to it, I think, oh, well, this time it'll make sense. This time I'll be able to thread the needle. And I, I just have never been able to. So maybe I will read it and one of you will know it or will think, oh, well, this is such an obvious solution and will we'll, you know, write in and let me know exactly what it is that I've been missing. But for now, I continue to miss it. Uh, so this is 60 Years After by Derek Walcott. Uh, see, does this, was this, um, you know, I don't think there are any acknowledgements in this book. I don't know if that means that none of these poems were Oh, yeah. So he just says some of these poems originally appeared. All right. So I don't know. I don't know where this was first published, but it appeared in White Egrets in 2010. This is 60 Years After by Derek Walcott. In my wheelchair in the Virgin Lounge at Viewfort, I saw, sitting in her own wheelchair, her beauty hunched like a crumpled flower, the one whom I thought as the fire of my young life would do her duty to be golden and beautiful and young forever, even as I aged. She was treble-chinned, old. Her devastating smile was netted in wrinkles. But I felt the fever briefly returning as we sat there, crippled, hating time and the lie of general pleasantries. Small waves still break against the small stone pier, where a boatman left me in the orange piece of dusk a half-century ago, maybe happier, being erect, she like a deer in her shyness, I stalking an impossible consummation. Those who knew us knew we would never be together, at least not walking. Now, the silent knives from the intercom went through us. So it, it's a um, it's a poem in which the the speaker, who does seem to be Walcott, uh, encounters an, an old flame. Though I, that uh, phrase is is um, 
is misapplied by the way that or, or rather the way we've come to use old flame incidentally is not actually quite the way it was originally used in the Aeneid in, in the Aeneid this is a uh, or, or Virgil has Dido say agnosco veteris vestigii flammae I recognize again the traces of the old flame we use old flame to refer to a person you know your old flame meaning your you know the girlfriend you had in high school or the person you used to be in love with but the old flame that Dido recognizes when when she says that is she, she is remembering the heat of passion she is remembering in her own heart the feeling of love from when she loved her husband and so you know Aeneas is stirring the old flame that is inside Dido so the old flame is not it's not the person it's the feeling and it belongs in the the one in the lover uh, more than in the beloved and in this case it's not even that the old flame is it's not that she's feeling love for her husband again it's that she is having the same feeling that was stirred for her husband stirred by someone new so it's really a very different uh, thing than, than what we, the way we use it but uh, in the colloquial sense uh, Walcott encounters an old flame in the airport, uh, and there are there is you know a couple of very obvious poems that this nods to. Uh, the the first one that comes to mind is uh, Yeats's "After Long Silence," which is, if memory serves, speech after long silence. It is right, all other lovers being estranged or dead, unfriendly lamplight hid under its shade, the curtains drawn upon unfriendly night. I'm not sure if it's upon or against that we discant and yet again discant upon the supreme theme of art and song bodily decrepitude is wisdom young we loved each other and were ignorant and that does seem to be very much a poem that sort of lies behind the screen of this one uh, there there are i think a, a, a lot of really lovely touches just just really delicate smart little choices that he's made and you know in, in a relatively simple poem or a seemingly simple poem uh the virgin lounge at viewfort viewfort being meaning old strong old stronghold uh and and virgin of course having uh referring to the airline but but um but also to its namesake and um you know there he does he does a little bit of nice work with uh with line breaks uh, her devastating line break smile was netted in wrinkles so that uh we we see the the ruination before we we see the original but for him these two things seem sort of to coexist she is like a crumpled flower which is again it's it's just a it seems sort of effortless but um and, you know for all the times women have been compared to flowers this is a crumpled flower after the fact it is no longer in the full charm of its bloom but neither is it you know the dry leaves of horace 125 it's something else it is a it is an artifact but it is an artifact that testifies to its original beauty or to the beauty of the original small waves still break against the small stone pier i think it's a that's a pretty wonderful little line um the, partly just because the the meter of it is really curious and lovely it's um iambic pentameter but you know apart from that against in the middle which is the moment of collision all of the rest of the words are monosyllabic and small waves still break you know that's 
that almost reads, I think you could easily scan that as spondy spondy against the small stone pier. And then you have, I am, I am spondy. So, you know, you end up with, uh, you know, easily the, the great majority of the, the syllables in this, uh, in this line end up being stressed. There's something really insistent to that claim. Um, small waves still break against the small stone pier. The, the, he's claiming here, of course, that the past is still there somewhere. It must be still the case. And it is at least the case in his memory that um, this is, it refuses to be gone. Uh, we hear there, of course, the end of Gatsby, but also um, small waves still break against the small stone pier where a boatman left me in the orange piece of dusk a half century ago. That boatman calls to mind Charon. Uh, so that there is here a feeling of, um, there's a sort begins to be a sort of a conflation between uh, the, the, you know, the recollection of youth and the oblivion of death. You know, we're told later that the others knew they would never be together, at least not walking. And here they're literally not walking because they're in wheelchairs. But we get the impression that it may have been, it may not have been wheelchairs that other people had in mind. It may have been that the thought was, well, they will never be together while they're alive. And so they do seem to be in this strange sort of, you know, in the same way they're in, they're in an airport. They're in an in-between place. They are sort of neither living nor dead. They are neither their old selves, nor are they merely what they have been reduced to. They are something else. And then again, I mean, it is, it's so simple, but they're really elegant little choices. Uh, a half century ago, maybe happier. And happier with Pierre is a, it's, it's a, um, I guess a wrenched rhyme technically, but it is a really lovely one, particularly because he gets the literal uh, repetition of P-I-E-R -P in, um, in the, the uh, happier, but maybe happier being erect. She like a deer in her shyness. This is when he was left by the boatman. And that being erect does, you know, does a couple of, it does, a, I, th I think at least, you know, two and a half or three different things there. Of course, we think of uh, this was when he could stand up on his own strength. So he was literally standing up erect, but also uh, we can't help but think that of, you know, tumescence, of arousal, and not just arousal because this is a, you know, this was a, uh, this woman was an object of sexual desire, but uh, thwarted arousal or un, uh, unrelieved arousal because, of course, they never consummated whatever it was that they may or may not have had between them. And he called, he says, she like a deer in her shyness I stalking an impossible consummation. And that deer and stalking in which he's, he seems to be a hunter and she the prey. Um, you know, we, 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 again, we can't help but hear Thomas Wyatt's, who so list to hunt, I know where is in hind, but, uh, um, but as for me, alas, I may no more. The vain travail hath wearied me so sore. I am of them that farthest cometh behind. Yet can I by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer, but as she fleeth afore, fainting I follow, I leave off, therefore, sithens in a net, I seek to hold the wind. Who list to hunt, I put him out of doubt, as well as I may spend his time in vain. Um, and graven in diamonds and letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about. I'm losing it here. Then the last two lines are noli me tangere, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. So again, a man comparing his pursuit of this woman to 
a hunter stalking a deer. And in both cases, of course, the, the hunt is in vain. There is no completion to it. And that brings me to the end of this, I think, really deft, beautiful, heartbreaking poem. And the last line, which is shattering, I mean, which is really penetrating. No, no pun intended, though I guess it's unavoidable. The last line is, now the silent knives from the intercom went through us. Uh, I think we can all recognize that feeling of the, the intimate and intense emotional, personal and homecomings and leave takings that occur at an airport that are, of course, rudely and heartlessly interrupted by the loud, dissonant intercom making its routine announcements with no regard for you know, your personal drama of the day. Uh, so that, that harshness, that heartlessness is familiar. The problem, the problem here is that he says the silent knives. Now the silent knives from the intercom went through us. Well, what the fuck is he talking about? If they're from the intercom, then presumably they are not silent because the intercom produces nothing but sound. So, I mean, I think what would seem to make more sense if, if what is intended is that the intercom interrupts this reverie and cuts through, cuts them to the quick with its coarse insistence on the, the absolute present and the, the ticking clock of the, you know, the, the flight that is now boarding and a total disregard for their, their quiet little uh, personal memories and uh, near miss from, from many decades ago. If what is intended is that kind of interruption, then, then they're not silent knives, they're invisible knives, right? The invisible knives from the intercom went through. Of course, invisible sounds way worse. Silent knives sounds much better. You get the assonance on the long eye and uh, the meter doesn't get fucked up. So invisible knives, you see why he didn't say that because that just doesn't sound very good. But what the fuck are the silent knives then? I, you know, I know I've had, uh, um, Ryan I think has said at one point to me, he said that the silent knives were the things that the intercom was not saying or was saying it was silently rebuking them in some way while loudly announcing the final boarding call for some flight to Tucson, but that doesn't seem quite right. So I just can't fucking figure it out. What are the silent knives? How is this supposed to work? It's such a good poem. It's so carefully, lovingly made. And then the last line fucks it all up. And I still enjoy the poem and I still come back to it, but I cannot, uh, it, it is, um, as, uh, who is it? Is it Hermia who says it is too hard a knot for me to untie? Uh, whoever it was, I agree. Uh, that's where I'm left with this fucking poem. Really admire it. Totally stymied by it. So that's about all I've got to say about uh, 60 Years After by Derek Walcott. I'll read it one more time. Maybe the solution will come to you and then I will sign off. 60 Years After by Derek Walcott. In my wheelchair, in the Virgin Lounge at Viewfort, 
I saw, sitting in her own wheelchair, her beauty hunched like a crumpled flower, the one whom I thought as the fire of my young life would do her duty to be golden and beautiful and young forever, even as I aged. She was treble-chinned, old, her devastating smile was netted in wrinkles. But I felt the fever, briefly returning, as we sat there, crippled, hating time and the lie of general pleasantries. Small waves still break against the small stone pier, where a boatman left me in the orange piece of dusk a half-century ago, maybe happier being erect, she like a deer in her shyness, I stalking an impossible consummation. Those who knew us knew we would never be together, at least not walking. Now the silent knives from the intercom went through us. So that was 60 Years After by Derek Walcott. Uh, and this is Slee Ricketts. You can write to me with comments, questions, or whatever at sleerickets at gmail.com. A listener informed me this past week that apparently the my email address is not listed on the Apple Podcasts page. I have not been able to figure out why that would be the case or how I can correct it, but uh, the email address is always in the show notes for every individual episode, or you can just go to my website, matthewbuckleysmith.com, and there uh, should be at least one or two ways to get in touch with me there. Thank you so much for listening, and with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Thank <laughs> you.